Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices that we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips for Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. Statistics indicate that women are entering the tax profession, including accounting, in increasing numbers. But even though we're seeing more women in tax and accounting offices, by the numbers, women are still underrepresented in management and leadership roles. According to the Accounting and Financial Women's Alliance, women represent 50% of all full-time staff at CPA firms, but make up just 27% of partners and principals. And as the firms increase in size, women are less likely to hold leadership roles. So what will it take to buck that trend? To get some insight, I've asked one of the leaders in the tax industry to the show. Catherine Kaminsky is vice chair and trust solutions co-leader at PwC. In this role, she leads the combined tax and assurance business. Catherine is a partner with more than 25 years of experience serving the financial services industry, leading the delivery of assurance, tax, and advisory services to global clients. She was recognized in Crane's 2019 list of notable women in accounting and consulting. One of Catherine's key focuses as a leader is the advancement of female and diverse professionals in the firm. She is sought out as a leadership mentor and regularly speaks at universities, conferences, and PwC functions regarding career development. Catherine is also a member of the board of the United Way of New York City. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Kelly. How are you? I'm good. You know, it's the middle of tax season, so I think we're all a little bit frazzled. (laughs) But one of the things that actually I wanted to talk about, like right out of the gate, is one of the things that you, so you wrote a piece, and I will link to it in the show notes for our listeners, but you wrote a piece about empathy, respect for boundaries and priorities. One of the lines jumped out at me, especially today, because today I am just feeling it. You wrote, I have found that being open with colleagues and clients about what is going on in my life outside of work can help build the strongest relationships. And normally, like in my my outline, I was going to kind of ease into that toward the end of the conversation. But today has been that kind of day for me. And <laughs> it really, really resonated with that line. Because I'm, I, uh, so anybody who follows me on Twitter knows my dad has been in the hospital and he's far away and it's really stressful. And I told my boss, I sent an email. And one of the first things that she said in our early morning meeting is, how are you? Mm. Like that was right out of the, like, how are you? And you know, how are you? How is your father? And I thought that was so important because one of, and I say this in context of, I have just had a recent speech that I gave at a tax class. And one of the women sent me an email afterwards and asked about balance because this was something she was worried about as a parent. And I do think that especially women, we hold to this standard that you're not supposed to talk about stuff, right? Because like stuff outside of tax, because it makes you look weak. And I love that you wrote that in the piece. And I was wondering if you can, because you're obviously you're in a position of leadership at one of the largest accounting firms in the country. How did you find that line? Like what made you in your career know that you could say that? Because I think a lot of women are afraid to talk about stuff that's going on in their lives. And and I don't mean like, you know, the minutiae, but like things that actually affect them, especially during the pandemic. So 
what kind of led to you feeling like you wanted to be a role model and say that out loud? Yeah. First of all, I do hope uh, your father is is doing well. Oh, he is. Thank you. <laughs> so, you know, it, it is such a great question. I'll be really open. So I was a young partner and I had three kids under the age of two. So I had one and then I had twins, on, you know, which was all oh, wow. a bit of a surprise. Right. Mm-hmm. And at, at that point, I, you know, realized that is part of me. Like they also would get up at, I swear, 445 every morning and that was just their routine. And so someone came into my office once at like nine. They're like, you look kind of tired. I was like, I am actually, because mm-hmm. my kids get up at 445 in the morning. And we kind of laughed. And he said to me, he said, oh, I'm, I'm happy I know that. Because next time, like, I'll take you for a coffee for our meeting. Right? Oh, wow. Yeah. Right. Because if they don't know, they can't help you. And it does tie, in my opinion, being open, like a mentorship relationship and an advocacy relationship is a trust relationship, right? Mm-hmm. You need to be able to be honest and tell them about your life and who you are and what you are and your authentic person. And so when it started with that from a mentor and realized it, I thought, you know what, I'm going to try it out just to see what is my team like? What do they want to know about me? And it's sort of been something. And obviously you balance it. You're not going to mm-hmm. say every day that, but, and then when you got into this pandemic, at the time, I was actually the managing partner of our New York office and, and things weren't okay, as you know, right? Mm-hmm. People were not feeling very comfortable. And so it was okay that my kids were home all of a sudden and that they were coming into the videos and trying to say hi. At the beginning, I was like, oh no. And then I thought, you know what? This is sort of our lives. So we're going to be here and sort of let people see it. And I think all of that has led me to really, I believe it. And I also think just building relationships and I'm sure... Kelly, you agree and all the different things you've done is the best part about our job sometimes is meeting people, building relationships, working with people. But a relationship isn't only a business relationship, right? Right. You got to actually know the person. So that's where it all came from for me. Yeah. And I think I love that because I think it's so important, especially when, you know, you're looking at the numbers from the employment stats and you're seeing that women are leaving the profession during the pandemic. I mean, women are leaving the workplace generally, but also the profession during the pandemic. And I do wonder how much of that, I mean, some of it clearly is driven by things like childcare, but I wonder how much of that is at least the perception of a lack of support. Yeah, I think that it's, you know, we talk a lot about how are you and really meaning, right? Because everyone has different things going on. So, you know, it's interesting. People go first a little to the child, you know, childcare system and how can that help and how can we help them? But as you know, it's a lot of different things. People are worried about their parents. It's a little bit of the sandwich generation too, right? You're Mm -hmm. worried about everybody. And so I think having the open conversations and then most importantly, one of the things we're really focused on is if you can talk about it, then we can help you, right? Because flexibility comes in a lot of different ways. And if we know what you need, we want to make sure you know we can give you that flexibility. And it's not just a nine to five job because it isn't, right? As you know, in public accounting, it's not. And so if you need the job to be eight to six, or if you actually need the job to be 10 to nine, like let us help you. And the more we know, the more we can do to help you. And and that's why I like to tie it back into like telling your story so that people can actually help. Right. And one of the stats that you cited in your piece, which I found remarkable, is that PwC did a workforce pulse survey and the majority of women aged 35 to 44, including working mothers said they feel stressed or anxious with 70% feeling unable to ask for help in managing work-related stress. That's an incredible number. Yeah, it's hard, right? Like when you're trying to balance everything and then you don't even think you can, 
it just does add to the overall stress and strain. And sometimes it's just telling people, you know, it's okay to just take a moment to breathe. That sounds so small, Kelly, but it's so important, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, just turning off your camera every now and again, that's okay. It's really okay. Right. And I think it's especially hard. I talked about this on Bill Sheridan's podcast. I think it's especially hard this year because with the pandemic, you know, yeah, the workload is hard, right? The, mm-hmm. the tax season never ended last year. But one of the other things that I think is really hard is, you know, in addition to balancing all of the stressful things at home, you have clients that you're talking to, some of whom aren't sure that they can keep their businesses going, some of whom are worried about losing jobs, companies that thought that they were expanding that maybe aren't now. I think that sometimes you feel like you're the counselor for everybody. And then you go home and of course you have to be, some of us are home um, (laughs) anyway, but you know, you feel like then you have to, you have to listen to the kids too. So, you know, when you talk about providing an outlet or a moment to breathe, I think that that's more important than, than folks even realize. Absolutely. Because the one thing, you know, that I have always said, um, you know, I used to be on the road a lot. I traveled a lot. I'm home now, as, as you know, and, and, you know, starting to get back on the road, which is nice, actually. But it's a little unfair, I find sometimes to the family because you're there, but you're not there. Mm-hmm. Right. Like they see you. Right. Yeah. But you're, mm-hmm. you're working. And so for me, even that time to breathe so that they can, they can be part of you and you can sort of go back to some normalcy. So I do like, the one thing someone asked me, we try to eat together, dinner together as a family as much as we can. We do too. Yeah. And we, you know, I block time in my calendar for that. And then we do some type of like, we laugh, either it's, we read together for half an hour or we do Jeopardy or, you know, we just watch something that we're just together for an hour as a family. No one bothers us. And, and that's our breathing time as a family. And it's okay to talk about that. Right. And it's okay to say, no, actually, I know everything's really important right now, but that's also just as important. That and and then my team knows like it's pretty hard to make me not do that time. It has to be something pretty important because mm-hmm. my family is just as important, right? And right. everyone has to feel important right now. Yeah, one of the things that's funny, um, I remember someone chastising me. It was an older person chastising mm-hmm. me because I had my phone out at an event with mm-hmm. my kids, and um, they were like, you know, oh, you you know, you need to be present. It was actually it wasn't it was a game, and they weren't even playing yet. But I remember saying to them, but what you don't understand is that me having this device in my hand is the reason I am here. Like it was the middle of the day and I was at a field hockey game and I could be there because I was still working. And I think that in that way, you know, technology has allowed, you know, even before the pandemic has allowed for a lot of families to have, I think, a better work life balance than we thought. Like, I think there's a lot of criticisms of gadgets. But, you know, thank goodness for my laptop that fits in my purse, because when I'm at soccer practice, I literally can just pull out the laptop and do what I need to do. And I'm doing both things at one time. And, um, you know, and then I can set aside the time that's just focused time on my kids or just I love time that. on work. Yeah, it's so true. It's like a bit of a security blanket, right? You're not worried about what you think is coming through your emails because you can see and you're doing both. And and it's a balance, right? And, you know, I mean, we all know where we need to be and where our focus needs to be and when it does. And I think talking about it really matters and our teams need to hear it, right? Because if exactly. our teams don't hear us talking about it and just saying balance, 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 but not seeing it and what it means to you personally, I don't think people really get it because everybody does it differently and there should be no judgment, right? That's the mm-hmm. other big thing, like no judging. I always said, like when I would leave at the end of the day to go do something with the kids, I'd tell everyone, 
They're like, really? I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine telling people where I'm going and I'm, I'm proud I'm going and I'm proud, the, proud the firm gives me the flexibility to do it. There's nothing wrong with it. Agreed. And we got to change that, right? You got to change that. And it's funny because one of my first jobs, my managing partner, who's a great guy, but he used to take every Friday afternoon off to go golfing at, during the summer. It was mm. a standing thing about two or two thirty. He would literally wear like a suit jacket and he would have like shorts on <laughs> underneath. Um, so that he would leave, he would leave at two thirty on a Friday just during the summer to go play golf. And it was a thing. And he was very clear about that to people. Yeah. Like that was his golf time. And I remember after I had kids feeling really self-conscious about saying things like I have a doctor's appointment with my kids. And then I thought back to my boss, who yeah. was a man who felt very comfortable <laughs> telling people he was golfing. I totally but, but I felt agree. guilty about saying that I have to step away for an hour to go to take my kids to the doctor. So I do think it is yeah. all about conversations. My boss had normalized golf in the afternoon. Like, yes, it was he had normalized it. And I do think that we should normalize taking time for family, no matter who you are. Yeah, I love that. I think that's so good. It's so true. And when you talked early on about mentors, this is something mm -hmm. that I'm asked a lot about by younger professionals. So a lot of my work that I did early on was in smaller companies. So I didn't have like a dedicated mentor at my company until I got into bigger workplaces. How or what kind of advice can you give to younger women who are looking or seeking out mentors to, to help them? Because I think if you don't know how to find somebody. And if your company doesn't assign you a person, you know, you feel kind of adrift. It feels weird going up to somebody and saying, can you help me? Yeah. What kind of advice would you give to younger women who are looking for those mentors? Sure, uh, Kelly, it's such a great and such a critical point because it really, I think when you read, and I'm sure you've seen that it's many people's success factors, both men and women, by the way, is having allies and, mm -hmm. and mentors and sponsors. And I think to thrive, we need both of those. And I think what's important is your allies and your mentors can be of either sex. Both males and females have responsibilities for, for doing this and playing that role. Mm -hmm. And I think going back to the pandemic, right? Right now, support systems are so important. And like that is a huge support system as a mentor or an ally. And I think that's where we're also finding the stress and anxiety come in all the time. And so I, I will say two things on it. I think one is the work you do your, itself. And if you're working with someone, that is a great way to start building mentorship, right? With the person you're doing work with, because they mm -hmm. see you and they know you. And sometimes you just have to say like, how did I do? And they give you feedback. And that's the first beginning of that relationship, right? In a formal or informal way. And then secondly, I think there's a big piece of it around supporting when things get difficult. Right. So that it goes back to like, it's okay to say things are difficult. And what do you need in that environment? And sometimes that could be different. For me, I have that sometimes I had great male allies, but I also had a great group of women who I would go to and I use them for mentorship when things, you know, they were peers, but like, sometimes it's just good to have that conversation. Sure. And then I think, you know, the, the one thing both starting professionally is really looking around and seeing there are some people that are really good being mentors and you can see it every day, but sometimes it's looking for that person who might be quieter, but you've spent time with and you know, you know, they emulate some of the things you want to be em emulate and you say to them, like, I'd love to spend some time with you. How did you do what you did? And then to me, the other big part that I've used in my life, and I think you've seen it through, through my writing is my fa like my family, my husband, my parents, like 
I still go back to them as like critical mentors. Mm-hmm. So I think you can look across the whole broad spectrum, like people you work with, people you work for, your peers, and then your families. And and it's okay to ask for help, right? And it, the help is more about forward looking. Sometimes it's also saying, you know, you've just worked with me. What things do you think I can do? And just building that relationship there. So it's a long answer, but you know, it's the cheerleaders that you want in your life and who they are and where they can be. Right. And I love you mentioned in your piece that your parents said, Kaminsky's don't quit. And I yeah. love that, that your parents are so supportive. So did they, did they help you kind of decide tax? Like how did that journey happen? Like, did you love math as a kid? Like how did you end up in tax? So funny to start with, I actually have a history degree. I'm an arts and science student. Mm-hmm. And I was at university. I grew up in Canada and there was a listing for the legacy firm Coopers and Lyran for a arts and science students to work in public accounting. And I'd always had a viewpoint, like my parents always were really big on, on us having jobs in the summer. And we always had this deal for two months. I'd work at court in corporate. I don't know if you ever remember a company called Corel Draw. They ended, oh, yes. They were, uh-huh. Yeah. So I worked for two months and, and I did customer service. And then for two months, to be honest with you, I was then allowed to go back and be a camp counselor, which was my, I love that job. So we always had some type and the same thing. So my parents are big believers in professional designations. And the plan was I could do an arts degree, you know, a history degree, as long as I thought about what was next. And here it was like serendipitous, right? This, this job for an arts and science student. And they put, I went work full time and the, the firm at the time put me back to school part-time at night. So I went and did all my accounting classes. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you that, and, and tax classes, because that was the one actually I struggled with the most. And to be honest with you, like there were a lot of moments where I was like, this is hard. It's hard working every day and going to school at night. And right. um, uh, my parents like, that's what we, that's what you're doing. It's hard. Yes. And I struggled with one of my tax classes. My mother told me to go talk to the professor after, after class and she could help me. And I was like, mom, seriously. <laughs> but sure enough, I did it because I listened and it was an incredible female professor. I had happened to take personal and corporate tax together. And so I said that to her, she kind of laughed and, and, and she helped and, and I got through it. And then I, and then I moved to the U S and did my CPA. And, you know, my background is a little different, right? I am not actually a typical tax leader. I spent most of my career in the assurance side. So I've just become a tax lover in the last eight months. Oh, wow. So when I, yeah. When I was asked to take on the tax leadership role, I had a cross loss because of the work that I did. And so now I'm in tax and really enjoying it. And I always like the, I think of it just generally public accounting. Once I got through both my CA and then my CPA, I think the things that I love about it, yes, the math, and I, I got pretty good at that, but also just the client relationships, the working with the teams, taking a step back and having, and I'm sure you feel this also sometimes, just being able to work through an issue quietly on your own. Mm-hmm. Like this job across the board is just incredible. Like there's yeah. not many places that you can say, like I, I mentor people, I coach people, I work with people, I do stuff on my own. I'm mentally, and I'm, you know, intellectual curiosity to the max. And I don't think people give it enough credit. It's a great job. Oh, sure. And it's funny when you mentioned being a, a history major. So I was too. And, um, and I always loved to write. And that was my favorite part of law school actually was writing because the problem solving, like when you talk about working quietly, I love that. I love somebody saying, here is my problem. You know, I need yeah. to fix this. And then I get to sit there and figure out how do I fix that? And then the relationship piece, of course, is when you fixed it, 
you've made that person's life so much better. And I used to joke with a lot of my clients because I did a lot of controversy work. And I would say to them, like, I remember an older woman grabbing my hand and saying, I'm so glad we came to you because she was able to sleep at night, like once the problem was resolved. And that's a pretty amazing feeling. Absolutely. And it's like the same thing. Like when I was in the core assurance practice, I used to always say like, I had this Northern star and like, so my, my grandmother, I'm very lucky. She's 98. She's still alive. Pre-COVID, she would go out a little bit more, but she'd go to the bank and she'd get money out of her bank account. That's because of what we do in public accounting, right? We make sure everything's right. We make sure Mm -hmm. the money's actually there. So there's lots of reasons why I ended up here, but I'm really happy I did. Did you feel any pushback being a woman in positions of leadership? I think, you know, it's interesting. Over time, confidence to me, like I never know if you feel it because every now and again, you're questioning yourself, right? Versus mm-hmm. is someone really questioning you. So I think, you know, a lot of times I did a lot of things to make sure I went in with a lot of confidence to different to different things. And like I had, I always have a little song. I used to walk to my client from our offices at 42nd Street to 47th Street. And I always listened to a very empowering song to make sure I went in there with, you know, that feeling that I knew what I was doing. And I think that I've been very... It's like your baseball leadoff song. Totally. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And it was really important. Everyone laughs at it, but it's just true. And and by the way, it gives you time to think, right? When you're listening to it. Mm -hmm. But I've been very lucky in my career in the sense that I've had really good sponsors and advocates who really made me feel good about what I was doing and and the the progression of how I was getting there, right? We always used to talk about it, what made sense next, so that I always felt that I belonged in the room. And and that's a big feeling. And, And I think a lot of it was due to their sort of constant and continual support. And that's why I am such a huge believer in advocacy, because, you know, it's hard to sometimes ask for something. Sometimes someone needs to ask for you. But the Mm -hmm. real secret is, are they there to support you when you're in the role? And I think I've been lucky that I've always gotten that support. Right. And one of the things that I kind of struck by as I'm listening is one of the questions that I often ask, especially other women in tax, is whether they resent kind of having to be the voice. And it sounds like you haven't run up against that much. And what I mean by that is, you know, sometimes, and I've, I've had this conversation also with people of color who have said, that sometimes they're a little resentful that they have to be the instructor, like the teacher, like they have to be the person to tell you how you should treat other people. It doesn't sound like you've had those experiences. Every now and then, like I have my moments and I try to do it with humor. Like I'm sure you've had before in your career where you'll say something, it kind of gets lost. Some A man sometimes says it right after you and it's a great idea. Yes. And so like... <laughs> So I'll use humor and I'll be like, yeah, of course it was a great idea. I just said it, right? Right, I try to make it like, because I do think there is pressure always, like whether it's in front of you or you feel it, that you're representing a huge amount of the population, but Mm -hmm. you also have to be you, right? We never think a male represents all men. And so like that lesson I talk about a lot, like all of us are different, right? It goes back to that sort of authentic self, right? Just because we're the same gender, same color, same, you know, anything doesn't mean we're the same. Right. And I think that's a tough, not only lesson to learn, but lesson to share, right? Yeah. Because there, I do think that there, and that's why um, this question has come up before, because I do think that you do feel pressure sometimes to be the representative. Yes, I agree. And then sometimes, you know, the, the yes, I think you're right, the representative, but as long as, you know, you use some humor or you're, you, you know, it's not, and I've not felt it ever that I would 
I feel like that, that, that my shoulders are burdened by anything, but every mm-hmm. now and again, I'll make a joke about something if I don't think it's what I wanted to hear. And I know we're, one of the things that you have been really involved in is this idea of DNI. Is mm-hmm. this is this something that you're working with committees on? Is this an ongoing initiative? Is you know h- how is that evolving? Yeah. So you know, for us as a firm, it's something like to start with at the firm level. It's really, really important, and it's been a narrative that I just can't tell you how important it is for the firm and you know how do you we talk about it and again the diverse workforce is is about inclusion and efforts for not just our people it's also our clients right and how we serve our clients and that it's a broad like we have 55,000 people at PwC so wow. you think about that and it's a big right different mm-hmm. races ethnicities genders backgrounds and we have to make diversity and inclusion work so we do it through many different ways right we do it through programs. We do it through training that we do for ourselves and for our people and our partners. And then we also do it through, and I believe in it, is thinking every day, am I making the right decisions? Is there a bias that I'm thinking about? And you know, within the firm, our progress is also about being accountable. And I'm sure you're, you've seen, we were transparent in sharing what has worked well and what hasn't. And then we're really looking to figure out what, ha- why it hasn't and what we need to do. Has it been hard? Because I will say, um, you know, I know accounting in law firms, typically there's been a pretty large concentration of men at the top and also white men at the top. And in some industries, I think it's easier to change those molds because of the kind of, you know, technology, for example, I work with a lot of tech clients. And everything is changing constantly in their world. And so it makes sense that it would change in their workplace. Tax and accounting firms, whether they're law firms or accounting firms, I think that they've always been a little resistant to change generally, not even just in terms of hiring, but just change. Has that been a challenge for you to kind of push that effort? So I think, you know, to me, Kelly, when we think about accounting firms, I think about accountability. And when I think about anything, like in my prior roles when, you know, there's a control breakdown, you got to look at who's accountable, what happens. So, you know, our CEO decided to do something, which was really the first ever for many of the the professional services in my, in my, in my, I think all professional services, definitely all the accounting firms is he did a diversity inclusion transparency report. And what it does is it reports on our diversity strategy, the data and the progress of our actions, right? And we're going to release it annually. And why do I bring that up? Because it goes to your question is, is everything perfect in our diversity? No, right? And I think that's important that we're saying it and we're showing it. And the, the mm-hmm. report is actually going to our clients' boards so that they can also help hold us accountable. And what we're going to be doing is we're really focused on it for change, right? we got to look at recruiting talent in new ways. We need to evolve the experience for our diverse cal- colleagues in the first two years that they join and shifting the makeup, right? So that the makeup of our partnership starts to shift. And I think the transparency report, while, you know, as a partner, forget even as a tax leader, as a partner of the firm, I looked at, and it gives a lot of information and we need to be more accountable to make those change. And now if we do it every year, we will be held accountable because you can compare year on year. And and to me, that's really important because if we just keep sort of talking about programs and doing different things without any accountability, I don't think it goes as far. So this big thing that he did with uh, linking it to accountability, I'm really proud of, really proud of. Yeah, no, I could understand that. 
I mean, obviously you don't have a crystal ball, but do you have like a hope for what you see at PwC, but also for the profession generally, like kind of, obviously you can't say in game because it's constantly evolving, but what do you hope comes next? Like, what do you hope to see in the future? Yeah, like I think what I really hope for in the future, and I I have to say, because I'm pretty honest, I don't think it's going to be in my future at the firm. But like, at what point will we be able to say that our starting class looks like our partner class? That's awesome. Do you know what I mean? Like, that to me is like the absolute end game that it has to be. I think that's where we're aiming towards. But, you know, it takes time. And I I know people don't like to hear that. Mm -hmm. But I think that's going to be like where one day. And and I think that's what my end game looks like in my head. I think that's terrific. That's actually the first time I've heard that articulated in that way. And I love it. Because almost (laughs) always when I talk about whether again, whether it's women or people of color in the profession, I almost always am saying some kind of statistic like 50% of graduates are, uh, you know, like from law school and and also from business schools and accounting programs are, are female. And yet 20 to 27%, depending on where you are, women in partnership roles. Yeah. That's amazing the way you've said that. I love it. Oh, thank you. And and like, I also bring it home too. I have three boys and like, we have a lot of fine uh, discussions about it. And, you know, we, we were having this, uh, one of my sons is a big debater and we were debate, you know, debating something and, and uh, he kept using, you know, he will do this. And I was like, you know, that there are women who do those jobs too. And we were joking, but we bring it up all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. And like going back to sort of at the home stuff, like I was very lucky. And I, I, I tell the story because it is one of my favorite stories. So my mother works and my father still works. And um, I used to try to go to art class with one of my sons and on a, on a Friday. And, and he said to me, I said, oh, but I'm going to be class with you tomorrow. And we're doing embroidery. Right. And he's like, mom, do you know how to sew? And I was like, no, actually, I, I don't. And he's like, does grandma know how to sew? I said, no, I don't think she does either. He's like, that's okay, because grandma taught you to work hard and never give up. And Papa knows how to sew. So to me, that was a win, right? Yeah, yeah. So those are the little wins that will hopefully end up being much bigger wins when they're in the workforce next. Right. So my my background is a little different in that I I come from the rural South and um, Mm. I'm a first generation college grad. And it's interesting to me because there was a lot of pushback in parts of my family, not my, my mom and dad, but parts of my family about me going to college. It was considered something that women just didn't do. And it's funny because it's one of the reasons that I feel really strongly. I've worked from home for a really long time. Even when Mm. I had an office, I even, I I was almost always home so that my kids could see me. And one of the reasons was I wanted my, so I have two girls and a boy. Mm. I wanted my girls to, and my boy to know that mom works and it's just something I do. Like it's something I like too. Yeah. And yeah. also my husband, so my husband worked with me for a while. He's at a different firm now, but he worked with me for a while. And I also wanted them to see him doing it. Like I wanted them to, like, I tell them all the time, we kind of joke, like they can do anything. We used to say to my girls that they could do anything they want, except exotic dancer and lawyer. <laughs> and we were willing to bend on exotic dancer because, you know, <laughs> my husband and I both being lawyers, it was a thing. But I always, I, I said, like, I just wanted them to see, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning with the way we treat women in the workplace is normalizing behavior. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so like the other part of my story that's pretty interesting is that for the last, and it's funny when you take into account COVID, for the last seven years, I'd been commuting from uh, New York to California every week. My my husband got a job 
in California. That was like a once in a lifetime job. And it was important, right, for him. Mm-hmm. And I could do mine flexibly and, and sort of just show that everybody's job is important and that, you know, we can work together as a team. Right. I will say I'm such a good team player. We moved back and he has not had to commute once since our, our since our move back. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I just think a lot of it, again, normalizing, like letting letting next generation see that you can make a lot of different things work. Yeah, exactly. Like, and that one, like, is actually a really good example also of like my, the advocacy of the firm. When that happened, it was like such a great, I mean, honestly, it was, it was a great job. And I didn't, I said, you should go for it. Never thinking as a very supportive wife that he would get the job, but he did. And then I was like, (laughs) oh boy. And again, like at the time I had two great mentors and I said, like, if I just said it this way, like, I need you to think about this. If you were to ask, you know, if it was, a man who didn't have three kids and da, 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 what would you say? And they say, we would try to make it work on a commuter basis. And, and that's what we tried. And it was great advice. And they were really supportive of it. That's terrific. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This has been an amazing conversation. I love it. I love like the direction of normalizing behavior and talking about how people are so different. I am hopeful that a lot of my listeners are inspired by it. If you wanted to be found and my readers, one of my readers and listeners wanted to find you um, either on social media or on the web, where would you send them? I would send them to LinkedIn under Catherine S. Kaminsky. I'm there without a doubt. Also through the PwC website, I'm there as well. And I did want to take one second, Kelly, to say thank you, because this is such a great discussion. And the more we talk about it together as women supporting women, it just gets us to such a great place. So I really have to thank you. Yeah, no, this is awesome. Thanks again. And I definitely look forward to seeing more of your work at Bloomberg. And hopefully we can have another conversation. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Thanks. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.